Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Ramblers. Andy here with another cracker from the Football Ramble Presents Archives. Now, April of this year marked one year since the European Super League debacle, where 12 of Europe's biggest clubs tried to wrestle the game away from everyone else. We marked the occasion with a three-part documentary where I spoke to a host of journalists and fans about their memories of those seismic couple of days and what we've learned since. If you like what you hear, search Back From The Brink in your podcast app to listen to episodes two and three right after this. Go on, you know you want to. So, Danny, the story broke while we were on air on TalkSport, like we are every Sunday night, doing Trans-Europe Express. What do you remember about that night and what were you feeling at the time? It's already an amazingly intense show. We talk about it for an hour or so beforehand. There's so much stuff we have to convey in the three hours, and you'd think three hours would be enough, but it's not. You're hyper alert the whole time because there's so many things you have to remember, individual leagues, players, tendencies, trends that we've been following, jokes we've been making, and all the rest of it. So it's already you're, you're in a state of very, very heightened broadcasting alert. And then... Out of the blue comes this thing, and it arrives It arrives into our world like a torpedo into the middle of a ship. Well, it appears this proposal of a European Super League, which poses an existential threat to football as we know it, is going ahead. I was in bed on Sunday morning around... I got a call really early, and it was <laughs> about, about half six, seven, from someone in Italy asking me if I was up 
I was like, well, I am now, you know. <laughs> and he, he was calling about something completely different. Um, something, something in Serie A, and he was furious about something. I was in the midst of writing a feature in my apartment when the news started to seep through. And when I say news, it wasn't the actuality of the Super League launching. It was the whispers that it was around the corner, that this was inevitable. And I remember distinctly thinking, oh, this is going to be seismic. And expecting some mammoth unveiling and some glitzy blockbuster kind of punch. I can see your mind whirring like a like a an old-fashioned computer at Bletchley Park. <laughs> is this real? Is this a joke? What does it mean? What are the details? And it became clear really quickly that this was real. This thing was going to happen. That this dozen clubs had set up a Super League in the complete darkness without anybody getting a leak out of it. And of course, that's why I struggled at first to believe it. Mm. Because, Andy, you know, how could they do this in secret? Football is ridiculously leaky sieve, and yet they had managed to do it. I must say, from a journalistic perspective, uh, I've never experienced 72 hours like that. I think it was around that uh, my mother-in-law was that day, so I, I kept... Not, not looking at my phone deliberately, not to be rude. Um, but when it rang for about the sixth or seventh time, I thought I'd better pick this up. And, uh, and lo and behold, the, the rest of the day was, uh, was taken up with this, I have to say. From a personal level, we went to get our sort of 12-week scan for, for, for my, my baby. So from a personal perspective, emotions were all over the place. The Eddie and Katie girl with the baby, we went and told kind of my grandparents that day that we're expecting our first three. But then I remember actually while we were telling them, you know, they were like, oh, let's get a takeaway and let's open a few beers and stuff like that. I was taking calls and I had to keep going to the garden. It was a beautiful day, sunny day, and I kept going to the gardens to take calls about this bloody Super League. This was the biggest story that's ever broken in our years together doing Trans Europe Express because it was going to fundamentally affect the game in Europe. It was going to um, cut adrift whole rafts of teams, indeed leagues, from even the possibility of the top table in world football, because that's what the Champions League is. Um, and it was going to confirm what already we know in our hearts, sorry, in our heads, but weren't allowed to, put, to admit in our hearts, that at the very highest level, um, and you're very lucky in some ways to support Wimbledon, that at the very highest level, these institutions um, that we support as though they were organic creatures that we have some relationship with are in fact chips on a gigantic monopoly board for global capital to move around as they feel they want to do. It was a heartbreaking moment when the fact that football is a business and not just a game anymore was thrown into absolutely stark focus. Make no mistake about it, it's a criminal act against the fans. Simple as that. You never hear from the owners of these clubs. It's pure greed, they're imposters, they're nothing to do with football in this country. It was one of those moments where everyone remembers where they were. Sunday, April 18th, 2021, was drawing to a close when the official news reached us. 
on the eve of the scheduled announcement of the restructure and expansion of the UEFA Champions League, it was the ultimate no-look pass to blindside European football's governors. Twelve of Europe's leading football clubs have today come together to announce they have agreed to establish a new midweek competition. The Super League, governed by its founding clubs, began the press release. Who are the founding clubs? Confirmation. AC Milan, Arsenal, Atletico Madrid, Chelsea, Barcelona, Inter Milan, Juventus, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, Real Madrid and Tottenham Hotspur have all joined as founding clubs. The statement says it is anticipated that a further three clubs will join ahead of the inaugural It contained gut punch after gut punch. We knew what it was, closing the shop, pulling up the drawbridge, withdrawing football status as the preserve of dreams and of endless possibilities telling us what we, the fans, wanted while assembling their plans under cover of darkness and consulting no one apart from their peers. Its chairman, Florentino Perez, the Real Madrid president, had the nerve in that opening statement to say that the plan would help football at every level, while Juventus' Andrea Agnelli, his vice chair, the man who sanctioned a net annual salary of 31 million euros for Cristiano Ronaldo as part of his club's hefty wage bill, spoke elsewhere in the statement about an aim to put the game we love on a sustainable footing. It may have entered our consciousness in the dead of night, but we knew what it was, even when it was whispered in the dark. And what those behemoths of the game's boardrooms weren't prepared for was that the game and its supporters, this time, were prepared to fight back. I'm the Football Rambles Andy Brassel, and this is Back From The Brink. It all came to a head in April last year, but the Super League story didn't begin there. It didn't even begin at the beginning of that year, or as the pandemic started. I remember being an 11-year-old who had started to go regularly to matches, and I'd started voraciously consuming everything written and broadcast about the game. One morning in 1987, I read about the Super League plans. It tied my stomach in knots, and the events of April 2021 made me feel that feeling all over again. So listen carefully, because the independence Miguel Delaney is here for a history lesson. Welcome to Super League 101. Well, the Super League obviously long precedes April 2021 and the build-up to that. It actually goes back to the late 1970s, which is when the first, the idea was first written down in a few European newspapers, and I think possibly Shoot or Match magazine. But there's always been some sort of core idea, which I suppose naturally comes from even the uh, the idea of a European Cup. But when it, when it started to take the shape that we know now, or really when events started that influence now, was really in the late 80s, specifically actually won the European Cup match which was Real Madrid against Napoli in 1987-88. Napoli, Maradona, Giordano y Francesco Romano. Arranca el partido en este desierto Estadio Santiago Bernabéu. This is, of course, Diego Maradona's Napoli against Real Madrid, uh, the most successful team in the history of the European Cup. And it was in the first round of the competition. And watching on, uh, a slightly younger, if not young, Silvio Berlusconi was kind of shocked by the fact that Two of these great teams, great names, could, as he would think, waste it on such an early round. This was, you know, a waste of Europe's great resources. So it was from that he actually went to, uh, I think it was called MC Sachi at the time, commissioned the idea for a new competition, which was essentially a Super League. Um, that was the start of uh, ructions, which eventually led 
to the modern champions, or sorry, to, to uh, the creation of the Champions League uh, in 1992. Because in order to essentially ward off the threat of it, UEFA started to make changes to their European Cup, took on some of Berlusconi's ideas. But I suppose as the whole history idea of shows, right up to the monstrosity the Champions League is about to become in 2024, and where many people I think would rightfully say it's a Super League and everything but name, right? particularly when you consider the coefficient entries where teams will get in for, um, for, for, for historic performance over the previous five years. It's really just feeding the beast. I mean, they, they give them an inch with every kind of reform of the Champions League and end up a mile it's taken. Uh, and that is the history the competition is now to the point where the biggest clubs were never have never been happy and that agitation from the early 90s led to a situation where there was always this agitation. It, it, it was really always the threat that the big clubs hung, around, hung over European football to try and extract what they want. And from that, from that perspective, you could even say the Super League has worked very well. Now, I suppose the, uh, the big wild card in all this has been the appropriation of clubs by nation states, specifically Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, and it was that that almost prompted this last stage of, of the Super League, uh, particularly from, you would say, the, the, the three European powers that are still the driver's idea, who are Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus, and who still haven't given it up. Um, they managed to get the English on board initially, or the English Big Six, and yeah, there was enough of a heave to um, to create huge ructions in European football in April 2021. Vleugels. 1995, just three years after the Champions League came into being, there was another attempted coup. Ajax, Barcelona, Bayern Munich and Manchester United hatched a plan for a Super League for 36 prominent clubs and a second competition for another 96 teams to replace the Cup Winners' Cup and the UEFA Cup. Not quite the exclusive clique that emerged last April. That was quickly abandoned after the threat of sanctions. In 1998, Media Partners, a Milan-based corporation, resurrected the Super League once more, reportedly offering Europe's top clubs £750 million for their participation. But all wasn't quite what it seemed, as Mark Ort, a sports competition lawyer, told me. The interesting point I got is that uh, some of club officials, I, I won't tell you who, um, uh, Sydney, when it was the Project Gandalf, they didn't have that bank guarantees, um, guaranteeing the income stream uh, really by number. They had quite high fantasies on what potential income could be, but they couldn't prove it with um, numbers and wasn't backed by any kind of banking guarantees, as far as I understand and was told to. The company's president, Rodolfo Hecht, rocked up in London in August of that year. Suavely dressed in an open-neck shirt, he was a man utterly confident in his project. He thanked Berlusconi for leading the way and assured everyone that his league would go ahead. Two months later, it was over. UEFA expanded the Champions League from 24 clubs to 32 and it merged the UEFA Cup and the Cup Winners' Cup. Media partners disappeared from the stage. Most of what we know, almost a lot of what we complain about now, the, the, uh, the size of big clubs that's, that's ruining competitors, the lack of variety in European football, the erosion of competitive balance, all of this comes from concessions made towards the Super League. So, as much as it shocked the world last year, the European Super League is not actually a new concept at all. Some people have been fighting this fight, largely for their own egos, for years. 
and one man in particular, one man at the head of arguably the biggest club in the world who wants to cement his legacy, has never let it go. Now, nine of the 12 so-called founding clubs of the European Super League may have withdrawn, but one of the architects of the project insists it's not dead and will return. Talking, of course, about the Real Madrid president and prospective chairman of the ESL, Florentino Perez. He's described the current Champions League format as obsolete. Well, he also is desperate for reporter, a, a legacy. I mean, he's, he already has one. If you think about what Real Madrid has been and become under his watch, but the stadium isn't named the Florentino Perez. It's called the Santiago Bernabeu Stadium, isn't it? That's it's another president. This is you know, Tarek Panja, he, 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 a journalist with the New York Times and one of the two journalists widely credited with breaking the story. Tarek goes searching for stories in the grey, murky underbelly of football and the rooms in which early iterations of the Super League were dreamed up were the murkiest around. And yes, sometimes it even looks like a meeting of villains from a James Bond movie. It's, it's, you know, it's his people at Key Capital. Um, this Spanish advisory firm, um, these two men, John Hahn um, and Anas Lagrari, who were the main kind of doers, the people putting putting the thing together, making the calls, speaking with J.P. Morgan, getting the clubs to try and um, you know align their interests. So, so this is a Florentino Perez-driven project. Since March 2018, there was a meeting in Bogota and Colombia of the FIFA Council. Gianni walks in the room, slaps down these pieces of paper, non-disclosure agreement, saying, look, I can't tell you who we've done a deal with, but there's $25 billion on the table. Not going to tell you who it's from. And it's for, um, the, the club, it's for a Club World Cup. Can you, you've got to give me permission to do it now. Obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, the fury in the room, UEFA and Seferin and and, um, and um, Gianni didn't talk for about a year. And that's quite amazing. It's quite, you know, it's a malfunction of sports, if you think about it, if the two main leaders of football can't talk to each other. For some, it was a malfunction. For others, it was an opportunity. Three months later, in May 2018, the chairman of the European Club Association, Andrea Agnelli, unveiled a big project to reshape European football. He proposed changing the Champions League from eight groups of four teams to four groups of eight. The end game was obvious for the top clubs to play more prestigious European games and make more money by expanding the Champions League format. It went down like a lead balloon with UEFA. But as Agnelli and his coterie slowly edged towards a fully-fledged Super League, FIFA, it turned out, would not be so obstructive. You've got these two camps that don't like each other. You need one of them to give you permission. So if you play them off against each other, you might stand a chance. And that's part of this story, in my view, as well. Not much. I, you know, I, I, I'd written a piece about the fact that they did talk to people at FIFA. Um, and they didn't say no. They didn't say don't do it, which is, which is I think, interesting. Kieran Maguire, the host of the Price of Football podcast, picks up the story. COVID certainly didn't help. I think that there's there's a sense uh, from the clubs themselves that they are the elite. And 
when when we had when we had the, the arrival of the disruptors so first of all there was chelsea then there was manchester city psg um and potentially newcastle united could be a disruptor as well in in terms of new money coming into the game um the, these clubs took the view and of course we've got psg in, in in france as well i think these clubs took the view that the only way that they could keep competition at arm's length was to outspend and i think they they are so convinced that uh, they they are right uh, in terms of wanting a to control the business uh, and b to concentrate revenue in in the hands of fewer and fewer clubs that uh, they they cannot see any reason why there should be any form of dissent and I, I still think they're, they're genuinely surprised by the ferocity of the reaction. So that's how the threat of the Super League had remained over the last few decades, lurking in the shadows, occasionally wielded as a bargaining chip, but never actually acted upon. There were signs even in 2020, though, that some were ready to cash in. Cast your mind back to Project Big Picture. It seems a long time ago in the depths of that ghostly behind-closed-doors season, but it is essential to what came after. The plan was put together by Liverpool and Manchester United. It offered to give an immediate £250 million shot in the arm to the EFL, as well as 25% of revenue from future Premier League TV deals. In return, the Premier League would be cut to 18 teams and the Carabao Cup would be abolished. Not so outrageous, perhaps, but clearly freeing up lots of fixture dates for, well, something else. And here's the rub. The so-called Big Six, along with West Ham, Everton and Southampton, would also be granted the power to pass and to veto certain rules, including new financial controls and blocking proposed club owners. No more disruptors. The opposition was fierce. Three days after the plan was leaked, Premier League clubs unanimously voted down the plans. But in these desperate times, the ideas of the Premier League's wealthiest clubs were growing wings. And at the beginning of 2021, the signs were starting to emerge again. Let's hear from the journalist who, along with Tarek, first broke the news here in the UK. I'm Martin Ziegler and I'm the chief sports reporter for The Times and Sunday Times. I mean, you probably have to go back a bit further to sort of January um, when I first got hold of a, a sort of written document showing what this sort of Super League proposals were all about. The fact that I think that, you know, there was this blueprint, I think that that certainly caused alarm bells to ring um, in UEFA and the sort of corridors of power of Premier League, etc. Um, because, you know, this was the first time, you know, for many, since probably 25, almost 25 years, that there'd actually been this sort of written proposal and the fact that there was a sort of merchant bank behind it and all this sort of thing. So that's when it sort of, things started building up. And then I think, UEFA thought it had gone away. They thought they, they sort of they, 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 they sort of, with their proposals for the new Champions League format that they'd sort of lanced that boil and that they uh, everybody was on board. I mean, Agnelli, the Juventus president, head of the European Club Association, I think he he sort of appeared in in early March to sort of put the Super League to bed publicly. Saying that he, he, I mean, even I think he thought he said something like he thought the uh, you know the Champions League the new format was excellent or words to that effect, um, and everyone thought oh well okay look you know the UEFA have got they've done the deal with the ECA it's all been sorted. I'd been talking to people about this uh, plan from about 
January. But I just didn't think it was going to happen. I took the contact in America who just says, like, look, they're serious. This is happening. And it was kind of just sort of bubbling under. But at the same time, the main actors, if you think about it, Andrea Agnelli, Manchester United, Edward Wood, um, Real Madrid, they were in the European Club Association, which at the time was deep in negotiations with UEFA about the uh, future of European club competition, particularly the, the Champions League. Now, even with all the information I was getting, I just still couldn't believe that people would behave like this. You, you would not still be in the room because you've got to be a wonderful actor, right? To be keeping that secret. But there is business as well. And business is like cold, hard money, I suppose, right? And, and deals to be done. I've not... I'm not a businessman, as uh, Tebas told me last week. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> if Javier Tebas, the president of La Liga, is saying that about you, then I reckon you're doing something right. We look back at all this and, yes, it's like a barely believable soap opera. Florentino Perez said that fans today have much shorter attention spans. Well, here in the space of a few days was enough drama to fill a whole box set. And on the morning of Sunday, April 18th, Events finally built to a climax. The business was done. The statement says it is anticipated that a further three clubs will join ahead of the inaugural season, which is intended to commence as soon as practicable. Saying going forward, the founding clubs look forward to holding discussions with UEFA and FIFA to work together in partnership to deliver the best outcomes for the new league and for football as a whole. Now, in terms of reaction, there is a comment from... I remember that, that Sunday, I remember I got a, I had a WhatsApp group made with a few journalists. Uh, one, they said to me, there's something absolutely huge going to break in an hour because one of their colleagues was doing it. Um, I, I actually don't think it was their colleagues that got the ultimate scoop because the first person to break it was Martin Ziegler of the Times, who basically dropped the bombshell that... Uh, the big clubs are going to announce Super League. It could be as early as tonight. As soon as I found out that the clubs had actually signed up to it, like literally signed a document, and including... I mean, initially I was told it was five of the, the, the England's sort of so-called big six had done it, and Manchester City um, were still sort of deliberating, and actually they, they joined in soon afterwards. Um I mean, I just thought it was going to be a sort of, you know, they, this was a going to be a massive earthquake. I didn't realise quite how big it was going to be, actually, I have to say. Um, I didn't realise that within sort of 24 hours, you're going to have, having the President of France and the Prime Minister of Great Britain weighing in. But, um, yeah, it, it just took, it took on a life of its own. I was in bed on Sunday morning around... I got a call really early, and it was <laughs> about... But half six, seven, from someone in Italy asking me if I was up. I was like, well, I am now. You know, <laughs> Sunday morning, six, six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. It's, it's chapel. And he, he was calling about something completely different. Um, something, something in Serie A. And he was furious about something. And he said, you need to check this issue that this man had. This is a story. You know, they can't, this is not right what's happening here. And um, I did, I checked, tried to check this other thing um, with someone at Serie A. And, and then that person, 
replied, I'm really, I can't talk at the moment. I'm really busy. We've got this insane situation with Super League, with a, with a Super League. And then I put all the other pieces together from what I'd had over the last few. I was like, holy, holy crap, you know, this is, this is happening. Obviously, that story builds up throughout the day. Um, and then realising that UEFA was on top of it. Because if you, if you realise the sequence of events, the, the, the stories were published... UEFA was ready with a press statement, a long one, um, showing that they were kind of tooled up and ready for the fight well before they knew on Saturday, as events will will show, and and you and you would have read and heard about you know um, Seferin and Agnelli um, playing this game of telephone all throughout Saturday, um, and, and and then basically Agnelli ghosting his friend in the end. And then that's when you, they knew the deal is done and then they, they got to work. I think it, it's sort of... <laughs> I bet it's like back in the days when I used to cover football matches and, you know, I'd be watching uh, watching my team, Arsenal, play and, uh, you know, you, you, you know you, you're sort of... Part of you is thinking, you know, this is... Uh, you know, you're emotionally invested in the match. Part of you is, is getting your... your um, actually um got to be professional and and take a sort of clear-headed approach to, to, to what's going on inside you and this is this was a sort of similar thing you know huge adrenaline from the in you it's a, it's a massive breaking news story and you know at the same time you know these feelings about like lots of fans you know i've i've, I've never been a think, thought the super league was anything either that, other than a sort of money grabbing exercise to enhance the power of the, the clubs are already the richest in the world anyway stories were published in the morning european time sunday early afternoon early mid afternoon there are these statements from um uefa there's it was orchestrated i think then the premier league had its made a, its announcement and then you had government ministers taking to the airwaves in the uk um and the only people you hadn't heard from were the 12 clubs that had signed up to Super League or Super League themselves, which was just bizarre, to be honest. At 11.30pm, one by one, AC Milan, Arsenal, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, Chelsea, Inter Milan, Juventus, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, Real Madrid and Tottenham Hotspur announced their participation in the Super League. All synchronised, all catching the world's media asleep on a Sunday night. Well, almost all of the world's media. I mean, so much happened in that three hours. I almost think of that and the show we did together the next night, the Monday night, as you pointed out. So much had changed in that 24 hours. I mean, how much of a shock was it to you? What was the biggest shock, the initial shock of the news coming out of nowhere or the fact that it all started to fall apart so fast and quite a lot of it had by the time we talked again less than 24 hours later? I mean, the fact that those two things happened in 24 hours, that this thing was announced and had fallen apart, if not completely, certainly, you know, quite a lot. In a fundamental way, later, yeah. That is itself... An incredible story, but I don't think you can escape from the fact because it's easy to retro-engineer this now. The truth of the matter is, this thing appeared to be done and dusted on that Sunday night. Mm. We talked about it as though it was done and dusted. We talked about when it would start, how it would look. As I say, while still railing about it outside and celebrating inside, um, 
we, we, it, was, it was done. The only thing, and I remember us pulling at the strings uh, at the time, uh, just, was that one or two really obvious clubs had not been included in it, you know? Mm. And you can tell me, you know, Paris, Bayern. Dortmund. They, they were just one, yeah. one or two clubs just thought, well, I mean, clearly they're going to join in later on. But for it to be a perfect storm uh, and... But we, we, and for its organisation not to appear flawed in retrospect, flawed in retrospect, it would need to have had all of those clubs. But let's be fair, you've got the six arguably biggest clubs in the Premier League. It is easy to pretend that we, you could see there were flaws in this, but we didn't at the time. You and I talked about this as though it was done and dusted. Um, so it, that was the biggest shock. So there it was. The big clubs had wielded this threat like a sword of Damocles for nigh on 50 years, and now they've played it. Gone were the backroom manoeuvres and blustering. Six clubs from England, three from Spain and three from Italy had decided that enough was enough and they were taking the world's game for themselves. Paris Saint-Germain, Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund all refused to participate. Teams from the Netherlands and Portugal rejected offers too. The format? Well, the proposed competition would feature 20 clubs, 15 of which would be dubbed founding clubs and who would govern the league's operation. They would never be relegated from the competition. Teams could qualify for the other five spots by, hey, performing well in their domestic leagues. The press release, more on that later, said that revenue would be in excess of 10 billion euros. Not bad for killing off football as we know it. After the break, we pick through the fallout from one of the biggest threats modern football has ever faced. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the immediate aftermath of the announcement, I had a lot of text messages, a few of them from players asking for an explainer of what was happening. Welcome back to the first of three episodes of Back From The Brink. 
This is Sky Sports' Melissa Reddy, one of the most well-connected journalists in the industry. Joel Glazer had promised that the Super League would bring together the world's greatest clubs and players. But nobody had actually asked the players. How did they feel about it all? And that was kind of a jarring thing because these are the assets you're expecting to carry out this Super League. Without players, you have no product and they have no idea what it's about. They had no agency, they had, you know, no part at all in the decision-making process. So there were a lot of confused footballers wondering what it means, how it would work. Um, They had all these questions that the Super League themselves or, or the founders of it wouldn't have been able to answer because they didn't get that far in depth in their own process or or thinking about the process. I think this is the major thing we often forget because it's always rammed in our faces how much these guys earn and you know what they can afford and their cars and their houses are, are presented to us but we forget that ultimately they got into this industry and they got into football because they enjoyed playing it as a kid just as we enjoyed football as a kid and what resonated with them for football or what appealed was the competition the fact that it means something it matters you know losing hurts winning gives you a sense of ecstasy and if winning or losing doesn't matter then what's the point why condition yourself to extreme levels why make so many sacrifices both you know personally and and on a professional scale to get to the very elite level when ultimately you're just guaranteed to compete um there's no jeopardy involved on monday the morning after the announcement Jordan Henderson received a call from Fenway Sports Group's president, Mike Gordon. He told him that FSG were committed to taking the club into the ESL, just a day after delivering the same news to Jurgen Klopp. A lot of staff as well were getting in touch to say, to make make it quite clear that this wasn't a football decision. It wasn't taken by the football operations team it wasn't taken by you know the manager or anyone involved at the training complex this was a decision by the ownership by Fenway Sports Group I mean I'm a Manchester United fan and have been for 40 years of my life but I'm disgusted absolutely disgusted I'm disgusted with Manchester United and Liverpool most I mean Liverpool they pretend you know you'll never walk alone the people's club the fans club Manchester United, 100 years, born out of workers around here. And they're breaking away into a league without competition. Fenway Sports Group are the owners of Liverpool Football Club. They were also one of the ringleaders in the European Super League project. The club's principal owner, John W. Henry, and its chairman, Tom Werner, had long had a simple goal in mind for Liverpool. To create a sporting model where risk was minimal and profit was maximal. It would become popular last April to blame this apparently American model, which is to say a model so transparently about business at the expense of our idea of sporting integrity, all about drawing up the ladder, guaranteeing revenue streams, ensuring investors got back what they put in and then some. For Liverpool, self-defined by their slogan, this means more, perhaps more than any other fan base, that 
was unacceptable. Remember, this is a club that very heavily leans on its socialist principles and uses it and pulls it out at every opportunity. They have uh, marketed it to the hilt. It It is a, a huge money driver for the club. It's a huge magnet for fans and new markets and stuff. The fact that, you know, Liverpool has this special soul and history and Bill Shankly and this means more and and all of these things. But Liverpool weren't the only giant of the English game putting their legacy on the line. Leading the charge in England alongside John W. Henry was Joel Glazer, the co-chair of Manchester United. In November 2020, the Glazers' trusted right-hand man Ed Woodward had told a Manchester United fans forum that the club were focused on strengthening existing UEFA club competitions. Any changes, he said, must be complementary to thriving domestic leagues. And yet the reality couldn't have been more different. Both Henry and Joel Glazer had been involved from the very start of the ESL three years before. Both had spearheaded Project Big Picture, and in April 2021, both were proudly announced as vice chairman of the new Super League alongside another American, Stan Kroenke. We'll come to him in a second. The Glazers have never been popular custodians of Manchester United. Malcolm Glazer first bought a stake in the club in autumn 2003 and completed a full takeover in May 2005. It was a leveraged buyout, heaping debt onto the world's most profitable football club. The Glazers have rarely undertaken any meaningful dialogue with the club supporters and at this moment, it really showed. I do actually think that the American owners of Manchester United and Liverpool... To them, it, they, they they just didn't get it. You know, they, they, to them it made sort of pure commercial sense that you sort of you know you, you you're not going to have to this sort of gamble about whether you're going to have the income from the Champions League every year because it's guaranteed money. And it, it, if you if you're an owner of a an NFL franchise, you have that guarantee. And, you know, why not have that in, in in football? I'm sure that would that was their sort of mindset. So they 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 didn't get it and. I think it came as a massive shock when the fans reacted as they did. And it's not just the other clubs in the traditional big six that are now moving to secure that guaranteed income. It's not even just the big clubs on the continent. Even clubs in the middle of the Premier League are catching up. Here's Kieran Maguire again. If you are a, a Galactico club, you're going to sign a couple of fantastic players at huge prices, but then you'd expect to hoover up that mid-tier market of the 30 to £40 million pound players. Well, we've got you're now competing with Everton and Villa, and probably next summer Newcastle, and you know Leicester, and so on. And, and I think that's something which which they really disliked, and that, therefore they wanted to uh, to shut the door um, in terms of clubs that could come through at a future date to be competitive um, and, and seal in income, um, and also make it more difficult for the um, either the, the the sovereign wealth fund owned clubs or the, the oligarch owned clubs. Um, in terms of being able to spend more money. I hear Perez saying that, that Manchester City and PSG and so on will destroy football. Well, when I last checked, neither Manchester City or PSG had ever won the Champions League. But what about the giants of the Premier League who might have been worried about falling through the cracks? Arsenal have now gone five years without qualifying for the Champions League. 
And when Tottenham reached the Champions League group stages in 2010, it was the first time that they had reached Europe's Premier Club competition since 1962 and the days of Danny Blanchflower. Spurs were, at the time, the richest club in the world to have never qualified for the post-1992 format of the Champions League. I caught up with Nick Ames, who writes for The Guardian and has covered Arsenal for a number of years. It's interesting because when you listen to quite a lot of the clubs explaining themselves afterwards, at the time it was everyone else is doing it, so we needed to do it so that the door doesn't shut on us. And that was very much how I think the Cronkies, um, and the Cronkies under, under some very stern interrogation from fans and media, rationalised it as well. And I, I think... I think in a way it's probably true. We don't know who, who set the ball rolling, but I think if if people see this sort of inexorable snowball building of clubs that they see themselves, you know, sitting alongside, then you're going to want to make the decision to jump in, I guess. And also for Arsenal, because they had had those seasons in the wilderness, um, obviously this season not in Europe, although that will change next season, and they've been out of the Champions League for four years or so. The future was quite uncertain. Covid hadn't been great financially. So I think in, in Arsenal's very specific case, you could say there was a, we cannot miss this opportunity to safeguard our future as how we see ourselves, rightly or wrongly, as an entertainment business. So you think, like, I tend to think that, Spurs and Arsenal particularly because they're in that sort of area between Champions League and Europa League they're sort of on the cusp they're the ones most likely to leap for it is that fair? Arsenal were definitely in in that position where they were no longer guaranteed a top four finish anymore they were no longer guaranteed those Tuesday and Wednesday nights with a Champions League and for Mikel Arteta's reign was not going as well as it is now um, the squad had not developed as well as it was now there were financial concerns so I think it was very much a case of the Cronkies probably parking any reservations they may have had to the back of their mind and saying well we feel we have to be in on this To go back to the fear of missing out that definitely the, was the motivation for some of them um, you know, probably you know Arsenal, Tottenham, Hotspur. Absolutely, they thought you know this is if we're not part of this, then we're, we're sort of done for. Um, I think Manchester City. I think they were. I think they were sort of the deliberations was because they're so rich anyway. Do they really need it? Is it going to be you know? Is it going to enhance their sort of uh, their, their prospects? Um, and I think. Um, I don't know, maybe it's with Barcelona links with, with Soriano, the city chief executive, I think they, that probably pushed them over the line. The thing is, once the shock of the announcement wore off among journalists we spoke to, a puzzling detail emerged. After such a big build-up, why did everything look so rushed? The actual announcement, the logo, <laughs> the... The phrasing of stuff, you know, the best teams, the best players was so elementary, so basic as though a 14 year old, you know, was sitting on his computer devising a school project that he was, you know, needing to present. And I'll never forget, like, thinking, okay, this is a huge deal, the fact that it's launched, but it it was actually 
comedic initially because of just how wishy-washy it was. It takes me back to an episode of The Simpsons where Homer Simpson, uh, he, he stood for mayor of Springfield on a platform of spending lots of money. And, and it worked for a couple of weeks and then they ran out of money. In case you can't remember it, I've actually got the logo up in front of me. It literally just says the Super League with the the in a splash of colour. Nothing else. Everything about it looked hastily and haphazardly put together. All the fancy images and graphics looked like they'd been dashed off in Photoshop that Sunday afternoon. You'd think that if you'd had this idea for over half a century and the proposal in writing for months, you'd have spent a fair bit of time on how it's going to look. Especially if you're trying to prize modern football away from the fans on which it's built. Here's Tarek Panjir again. Uh, I mean, this will go down as the, one of the biggest public relations failures in, in, in modern business or sport, whatever you want to call it. Like, what a catastrophe. What a mess. And, I, I, you know, and then you've read subsequently they spent millions of pounds on public relations advisors. You've got to wonder what they were up to. Because this thing that they pitched in the end, because don't forget we were in a pandemic, was a project to save European football. That's how they were trying to pitch this thing. Well, it was a project to save European football that launched when Europe was asleep at midnight, which was just odd. Like, who, you're howling at the moon at that point. And then we had um, Florentino Perez, I think, appearing 24 hours later on, on, on this pretty trashy um, late-night football show, Chiringuito, um, trying to sell this vision for young people and this kind of, you know, pensioner really explaining why what young people like. It, it just it just all went wrong, didn't it? Fichar Mbappé así es más fácil, ¿eh? Joder. ¿Eh? Digo, seguro que no me lo dice. <laughs> it, was, it was almost the, the worst sales pitch for the Super League, imagine. Not least because he himself was the figure conducting that sales pitch. So, that's how the European Super League came into existence. From the failed iterations of those early chances, through the COVID pandemic and the financial havoc that wreaked, to one year ago today, when they tried to sneak the announcement out in the dead of night, Join us in Wednesday for the second episode of the series, The Fight Back. We hear from fans at the heart of the protests that may well have turned the tide, in England at least. We'll see you on Wednesday. How could they have got it so wrong is the second shock. Um, and the fact that the anger of the fans, particularly in England, let's be honest, particularly in England, um, forced the English clubs to pull out of it within hours, and it was hours in some cases, um, is it, it, it's, it was remarkable at the time, and looking back on it, it seems almost incredible. Football Ramble Presents is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. <laughs>